Well, hey, Pete. Oh, no, we're we're doing this? <laughs> <laughs> ah, <clears throat> welcome to season two. Pete's ready. <laughs> I was still pushing buttons. You jumped right in. Uh, how you doing? <laughs> doing fine. Still pushing as, buttons. As we record this, you are getting just hammered in Nashville, as is most of the country. This is true. You okay? We're blanketed in ice. Lots of it. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. How'd you guys do up there? You had a big old snowstorm, as did Lance. That's where our interview stopped a little early, I might add, because we were that starting was really to get funny. worried for yeah. him to get on the road. <laughs> he was He's in Seattle. I'm in Portland. And he needed to get across a pass and down uh, I-5. And uh, it's not an easy trip up there on a bright, sunny, 80-degree day. <laughs> it's just gross. It's just Seattle gross. traffic is terrible. So, we, yeah, we were worried about him. We had to shuffle him out. We had uh, we had lots and lots of ice, and but we're used to that. Like, winter is ice here. That's what we get. It just rains all summer, all spring, and then winter is just ice. <laughs> um, so we, we did fine. Good. We A lot of people without power. This was, I should say, we did fine. Like, that is such a privileged thing a lot of people even today it's beautiful it's 50 degrees there isn't a lick of snow or ice on the ground anymore it disappeared as fast as it came in and a hundred thousand people still have no power yikes like after four or five days so it it was incredibly destructive to our infrastructure and our poor trees but uh you know portland strong well for those who have been uh pushing for some infrastructure upgrades over the last many years um between Texas and most everywhere else in the country, I think we've sure seen why. Yeah, we built the case. That's good. Thank That's you, Mother good. Nature. You may go about your business elsewhere. Right. Gentler. Yeah. You know who needs your help? The Arctic. <laughs> right. <laughs> the polar bears could use your help much more than we could once you get on back on up there. Absolutely. Boy. What do you think we of that conversation with Lance, with Lance Pete? <sighs> I, I feel like I feel like I need to ask you what you thought of your conversation with Lance, because you went into this um, feeling, uh, what is the right word for how you were feeling going into this conversation with Lance? Hmm. Is there a single word that describes that? Because we've talked to a bunch of of therapists and teachers and mindfulness experts, meditation guides, and now we're talking to a political economist and communications uh, educator. Yeah. Professor Emeritus of all the things I don't really know very much about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that was really fun for me about talking to him was it was a little like talking to my dad, who also has a Ph.D. in political science and... uh, Yeah, wildly intelligent in these areas that are so far afield from my day to day. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Um, And both uh, very patient... um, very patient mm-hmm. conversationalist, like able to kind of slow down and help me follow. Um, and I felt like it went really well. It was a very interesting conversation about the enormous amount of change we are in, as well as the change that is so badly needed that and remains elusive. Observation. He is able to talk about things that are worth getting fired up about without getting audibly fired up about them. Yeah. In ways that I tend to get wound up tight. Yeah. Right. When he's talking about the uh, polarization in the media, when you're asking these questions about, you know, uh, the MSNBC Fox News. Right. Rift. 
uh, and and what those what that looks like to the populace when you start talking about like how messages are being communicated and received. And he is able to talk about it in ways that are just frankly super chill. And yeah. I admire that because he, like so many of our guests last season, uh, is able to stay present in an important discussion that requires presence in ways that my emotional reaction at first blush tends to take me out of. Right. Like, yeah. who wants to listen to me when I'm getting fired up? Nobody wants to listen to me when I'm all fired up. That is a, uh, a that is a, a lesson that I think is super important right now yeah. right so before we talk about any specific points how he made his points is something worth hearing and maybe hearing again you're right and i mean i guess i'd be really interested to hear how those who are more conservatively minded experienced him because you're right i mean he certainly didn't rant and he didn't get he didn't get all jazzed up um but he's a he's you know uh quite openly a more progressively minded professor of these things sure um yeah and uh i have respect for and great affection for a number of people who see things differently um mm -hmm. but generally i see things more the way he does and i you know, might as well just own that right up front because anyone can tell that isn't to be critical or dismissive of others but I couldn't I couldn't quite tell as we were talking about it how well folks who disagreed with some of those points of view could stay with us versus feeling sort of dismissed. I don't know. Do you have any thought about that as a yeah, listener? I, I have yeah, because well I'm I you know, I'm You're I'm there. like you. I'm I, I think yeah. again pretty progressive and so uh, it, but but I found myself missing conversations with conservative friends and colleagues like this, right? I think right now we're in a space where any critique of conservatives of the Fox News message, right, all of those things, I'm saying those in heavy air quotes, um, because all of those things are mixed up in elements that I struggle with mightily, right? Uh, conspiracy theories, QAnon, like w w trust, belief. I deeply miss having conversations with conservative ideologies of people who have conservative ideologies in my circle that that uh you know were actually about um you know fiscal preparedness right the economy the value of trickle up versus trickle down like these are are really how we handle uh the homeless problem how we handle business growth and taxes and all of these things that aren't mired in um you know parties right and mm -hmm. and party lines and and i think that's one of the things he he obviously is wound up about those things deep down he doesn't really convey it and i think he'd probably be better at having those conversations than i would <laughs> he certainly demonstrated that yeah. i was listening on mute and i just i was found myself you know yelling <laughs> sing it sing it lance well i uh i wish he were here even uh you know five days later to give us uh, his take on how that impeachment trial ended you know yeah in particular i was really just struck and a little horrified to see mitch mcconnell say you know quite fiercely that Trump was responsible for a hell of a lot of what just happened here. Um, that 
what he had done was ethically and morally wrong, that he had done a lot of harm and um, and could expect to see, you know, criminal prosecution even. But I'm not going to vote to convict because it's an unconstitutional trial. And it is unconstitutional only because I made it so on purpose. And the disingenuousness yeah. of that was just uh, nauseating. It, the, the problem that Mitch McConnell has is his baggage, right? His baggage is the boy who cried wolf, right? He, is, he has been provably, repeatedly disingenuous so many times over his career as, as majority leader that um that serves his absolutely serves his ideological bent and his mission in congress and he did those things right he stacked the judges he did the things he wanted to do um and that's good for him like good for him uh but the problem is now because of all of that i can't hear his words as his truth i he can't sell that to me effectively enough that he is really a constitutional protectionist. I I don't believe him. Yeah. I don't believe him. And that's the problem so many in the party have now when they come out, even if late at night, I, I imagine Mitch in his sleeping robe and his hat and he's got his candle with the, the oil candle with the big thing. He looks he, he looks a lot like, you know, Mr. Scrooge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sitting at his old table and he sits down and he's writing with his quill pen on his parchment and he says dear diary i get it now i think i think i need to tell the people what i really think i'm going to do that tomorrow even if that happened i don't believe him yeah i don't believe him he's lost it and that, that, when you think about the nature of change that we have to face, and I think so much of what Lance was talking about, right, when you, when you talk about the, um, you know, the votes and January 6th and, and all, of, uh, all of the efforts to uh, stop the steal and, and all of those things. I mean, we have to be able to change the way people like me have to be able to come to terms with the fact that there are people of goodwill who can be trusted, and I have to figure out who they are. Because right now, I struggle with that. Um, it, it happened for you and I share a, a dear friend whose father was in national politics for a long, long time. And I, you know, not knowing him, I, I might have been able to say the same things about, you know, just make the same assumptions about him and, and uh, you know, his work in Washington. And what, um, you know, what I know is that he is one of those people who does put an incredible amount of thought behind his ideology, and that is precious. And I want to be with those people, those conservatives. I want to be in those circles, and I don't know where they are anymore. And I think that's the challenge that we're that that at least Lance was was putting out to me and and um, in listening to it. So I don't know. What do you think? Am I just vomiting up language? <laughs> no, I was thinking about how as soon as we ended the interview last week um i was saying something very similar to you and i was saying i have i have never missed mccain more than i do right now yeah like i i didn't agree with him all the time but i really trusted him 
I understand somebody will be able to point to his history and say, see, there he was being a politician. I'm sure there were moments where he played the strategy game, but I felt like he was a guy of principle and he was consistent. And Bernie Sanders can be sometimes a guy I don't always agree with either, Uh, mostly his strategy more than what he longs for. But he's also a guy who's reliable and consistent and a man of principle. And he, you know, he plants his flag where he means to defend it. And uh, and right now, if there's anything he has going for him, and that's something that I think we we need to note, is that whatever your ideological swing, if you go back 30 years and look at footage of Bernie Sanders, he's saying the same damn things. Exactly the same things. Yeah. And I really admire the handful of Republicans who are able to say, I understand this may be political suicide, and I understand this doesn't serve our party in the short-term sense of, you know, coming out looking good. Um, But in the long-term sense for the country and even for the GOP, I got to say what Trump did was not okay. And it's so brazenly obviously so that I am going to put my name behind that, even if my wife gets death threats tomorrow for it. And she probably will. Um, and I know McCain would have been in that bunch and he would have been leading that group saying we can do better than this. And there was a time where as a progressively minded guy, I, I was, I was thinking, Ooh, wouldn't that be great for the political gamesmanship of it all? If the GOP split in half and that the people with some integrity said, we're not going to take this anymore. And now there's since then, just in the last few days, been kind of a sadness for this country where I'm like, isn't there somebody with the guts to do it? Do they really want to hang on to power so badly that they would continue to hitch their wagon to Trump, who just last night comes out absolutely excoriating Mitch McConnell for telling the truth, you know, direct personal attack in every way he could at one point when early draft was said to have said mcconnell has more chins than he has brains like really yeah is this like what how, you how guys is have that, into yeah how is that furthering the the conversation oh, God. anyway it helped me to have lance part of this just making some sense of it it felt like to really make sense of it we need to talk to him for about six more hours but um I think yeah. we touched on some important stuff. Tell me he about the about, fairness he, doctrine from your well. Point I, of view. I want to. I got. I want to say one more thing. Yeah, which is that you know one of the things that he talked about that I think is really important is the the cultural identity of America. Right. This is. I, I think was it stuck out to me because he was talking about that. Um, uh, he said that I have colleagues who have claimed that there is a kind of psychocultural pattern in America, like a, a cultural DNA toward violence and white supremacy, and it never goes goes away. And he says, I was not persuaded by that argument until lately, but I'm beginning to rethink it as a possibility that we keep reproducing in all the ways that you reproduce the bad features of culture, or maybe the dysfunctional features of personality. And I was interested in your take on that, as he is talking about the cultural identity of America as it compares to the personal identity of the brain. Wow. Can you read it again? 
I even can wanted I? him to say, yeah. Can, can well, you can he can you have him say it again? Because you got some cool. Oh tech yeah, that might look at. Let's see what happens here. This will be a. We're going to roll the dice with this. Here you go. At least I would like to believe in progress and that we could learn from those dark periods in in our history and the Civil War is, is I guess, the darkest, um, and the aftermath of it. But it appears that, that there, you know, I have colleagues who claim that, that there is a kind of a psychocultural pattern in American, it's, it's sort of in the, the, the cultural DNA of, of America toward violence and white supremacy, and, and it never goes away. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I was not persuaded by that argument until lately, but I'm beginning to rethink it as a as a possibility that we keep reproducing in all the little ways that you reproduce the bad features of culture or maybe the, the, the dysfunctional features of a personality. That was the passage. First of all, it was completely insane that you could pull that up right on the fly without even (laughs) hitting pause in our editing, but okay, that's wild. Um, (laughs) Pete has cool gadgets, you guys. Um, It's really neat. (laughs) Okay, so here's some things that come to mind. The first thing that pops to mind is Maya Angelou's beautiful phrase, when people show you who they are, believe them. I do have a sinking feeling that, like, there is an element of American culture. There is a a part of the complex personality of who we are that really wants to say, I'm not kidding about this. I mean it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of a few things. One of them is, you know, we developed this show with a curiosity about how change comes about and a suspicion that some of the most interesting, most powerful, most effective elements of change are not driven by force. You don't just hammer change through because you're sick of it being the other way that often, you know... You convince by listening, let's say, that soft overcomes hard, as they would say in Taoism and so on, right? And I'm having this fear that um, those elements may not just soften. <laughs> mm-hmm. That I I know how to work with an individual who's racist and get to teach me about how the world taught you to fear that person. And when they feel heard, something begins to shift. I don't know how you do that for millions, right? Who either openly cheer Trump on or are willing to look the other way when he cages brown children because it's better than having those rapists in our country or something, right? I mean, it's I like I right. I don't how how do you have that conversation with seventy five million people who voted for him, especially when they voted for him for a whole range of reasons? Yeah, and if they're not going to change their minds, what do you do then? Do you just do what they're afraid Democrats will always do? which from our point of view, we do way too little. And from their point of view, we do too much, which is just to say, now that we've got power, we're just going to ram this home. We just will not stand for that shit anymore. We're going to do something else. Is that what it's going to take? Because that's not the way I normally see lasting change work very well. 
And that's where we are right now. We're in a yo-yo position. Right. Right. We go from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. Boing, 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 boing. Um, yeah. And, you know, you're already hearing Lindsey Graham saying things like, if we take the House, we're going to move to impeach Vice President Harris. Yeah. Like on zero grounds at all. Like he's yeah. already just saying just it to for say politics. It. Right. Yeah. Like I I worry for about us. And I also think about our you know, so so let me just just to finish that point, I I wonder if Lance, you know, is is teaching us sometimes change doesn't come about the way we on this show suspect it does. I don't know. Or maybe we haven't yet sorted out how does that show up in a, a group form i don't know and then finally to your back to your question of like how what do i make of that passage right there and the idea that maybe this element of the american culture hasn't evolved you know it's not just a wave that's moved through us around the time of the civil war it's and it it's back because it's perennial it's going to keep coming back yeah, because it never lasts. Then I just think about, you know, Carl Jung in the shadow. Like, is this like kind of human shadow work coming to the surface? You know, like fighting with that part of us that, of all of us, um, whether we want to be conscious about it and work with it and, you know, speak back to it or we just want to run with it. But there's mm -hmm. a part of all of us that says... I don't understand that, therefore I fear it, therefore I condemn it, therefore I dehumanize it, therefore I can do whatever I want to it. And that's the big question right there, because when I hear, I mean, as a guy who I, I think of myself as a progressive person, when people tell me that there are murderers and, and drug cartels coming across the border, there is a little tiny voice, that lizard brain voice in the back of my head that is telling me, you should run, mm -hmm. right? That, that, the um, amygdala fear almond is saying, get out because there are murderers and drug cartels coming across the border. And I think I'm starting to feel like there is the spectrum uh, is that there are people who hear that and are not able to stop and say, wait a minute. Is that rational? Do we have data to back that up? Is there support of, of that? Uh, and when we hear that support, can we stop and say, wait, does that seem rational? Does this support support? Can we feel that? And that's the spectrum. People who hear the fear and run and believe immediately without questioning and people who are automatically so cynical that they don't believe anything. And somewhere in there, we have the cultural populace of America, like the reason Fear and racism and all these things don't go away because they never went away because they're in all of us at some level. Yeah. Yeah. That's the part that bakes my noodle. I can't it's, I can't get to the other side of that. It's, it's really right. frustrating. And the question is, so if we've all got that, like where does does empathy play a role, if at all? Like, is there a mm -hmm. moment where we can remember their humanness too? Because, okay, so a few points here. One was, is there the data to back that up? Well, it depends on what you call data. 
Right. That, that used to be a scientific sort of progress, a process, right? An objective kind of data, a real accumulation of actual statistical fact. Mm-hmm. Best we could come up with it in an objective way. But nowadays it's, well, yeah, I have an anecdote of this one guy who came across and he did hurt somebody. Yeah. Of course and you suddenly do. that becomes Because data. if yeah. they've come across in huge numbers... Um, there are also future Nobel Prize winners who've come across. <laughs> right. In fact, right. one of the people who came across was, you know, my dear girlfriend from the time you and I were hanging out in Boulder, Anna Lee. She came across yeah. on the shoulders of her uncle as a little girl from Mexico and was grandfathered in <laughs> years later, blessedly. Uh, and she would have been one of those kids in a cage. Yeah. She would have been in a cage. Instead of going on to become an extraordinary student and an amazing doctor and a beautiful, beautiful human being, Mm -hmm. she would have been in a cage. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do with that? Uh, That's hard. So part of what it speaks to for me is like one of the topics we talked about with, with Lance is... What do we do now in this, this, you know, the disinformation age where science has become highly suspect for some reason, where we can't just trust that process? And increasingly for me, I worry that our attention spans have become so short that we don't have a lot of patience for science anymore. Especially because science can't come up with a single answer the first time out. You run a study and then you run it again and then you run it again and then you run 57 variations on it and then you learn something major new 10 years from then and you have to run it again with the new information and you go, "Uh uh-oh, maybe that would have come out differently if we'd known that. And then you start running those again. Like science is a slow, patient, painstaking approximation, you know, as you, you inch toward a reliable foundation of truth. We don't want yeah. that shit anymore. We just want a great opinion that was backed I, by a, I, yeah. a telling story, and that's enough. I I'm I may be more optimistic about our future, knowing that we have a lot of strife to go through to clean up the mess that we've made of ourselves, and it starts in the you know decades ago, right, the, when we started making this mess. Um, But I really see it as like we're in the middle of a stage of evolution right now, right? We are evolving. And the age of disinformation, right? We're in the dark. These are the dark ages. But, you know, like the Great Awakening comes after that. Something changes and we wake up and we're new people. We're new species. And we are able to see things in a different way. And I feel like we just happen to draw the short straw and end up in one of the darker periods of the Anthropocene. And that's, that's our lot. To, it's our lot to push ourselves forward and get to the other side of it. But we have to stop undoing these absolutely damaging decisions that are based on just super short-sighted um, impacts. So we talked about, you asked about the Fairness Doctrine, and so you guys talked a little bit about that. Um, you know, the the you know, the way it was it was ripped apart and the impacts on broadcasting. And, and in many respects, um, the Fairness Doctrine both would not have 
played a significant role in today's disinformation or misinformation age. And in others, you can really chart a path that says, you know, when in 1987, when they canceled the, the Fairness Doctrine, uh, you know, in a vote that was four to zero to to stop the, the Fairness Doctrine, uh, that in fact, the culture of online media was so determined by broadcast media that, in fact, we would not be here today had we had a, a culture uh, that represented fair and balanced, true, fair and balanced reporting in political discourse. We don't have that anymore. And it, this election cycle is absolutely demonstrative of that. It was a dumpster fire of debates and discourse and lies and it was terrible yeah. everywhere you know if you want to start rebuilding trust you, you gotta you gotta start at the place that says okay the people the american people need to be able to trust the information they're getting from the sources from which they are getting it yeah and right now that's broken that's the next stage of evolution for us it sounds like one of the things that needs to get publicized much more widely is whatever group that was that worked hard to rate all of the different um, media sources according to their, you know, balanced and fair coverage. But, you know, as I say that, even if everybody believed that 100%, I'm not sure how many folks care. Like, almost anybody who watches Fox News or MSNBC knows that PBS and NPR are closer to the center. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how many people who watch those two care? Yeah, and this is this is where I think it gets touchy uh, when you start looking at sort of regulation, a regulated approach to this, because the right. issue is not whether or not like uh, let, let's just let's just paint a picture <laughs> of what it might look like that there is a uh, dare I say maybe something like the Federal Communications Commission for example, and maybe they have a regulatory arm and they are able to say to broadcasters, to to media, hey, you need to present this information because we know that the market approach is not working. The market approach is got us where we are right now. The market approach got us Facebook's news algorithm that is so uh, reviled, like the market approach got us there. And all of these advocacy groups that are trying to trickle up, trying to push up awareness, it's not working because nobody cares. What we have to do is create a playing field where all of the media is regulated, balanced, so that you know when you go to Fox News that there will be there will be uh, consequences to uh, editorialists masquerading as journalists. Right. Mm -hmm. There are consequences to how that is packaged so that we can retrain our brains to what is and what is not truth. Right. That is a that is a universe in which like that's kind of where we were in the 70s and 80s. Right. Like that's that's where we were until the Fairness Doctrine was repealed. You know, one way that was handled was with the cigarettes where those companies used to say, how dare you claim that your science is better than our science? The tobacco industry yes. has found that tobacco is perfectly fine for the body. In fact, it's good for you. Look at this and look at this study, right? Yeah. And right. the government said, you're full of it. 
and you know it, and so do we, and so this will be printed on every single pack of those things you sell. Right. Just so you know, everybody, you can smoke this, but it's going to kill you in, you know, other words. Un- until um, we have a new standard, a truth in advertising, a truth in, in uh, broadcasting, yeah. like... Maybe you have a ticker tape that runs across the bottom of Fox News and MSNBC and whoever else is putting out stuff that isn't very balanced that says, you know, viewer discretion. This is not news. This is entertainment. This is editorial content. Right. Yeah. They have not followed any of the protocols as set up by the bipartisan commission, so-and-so. Yeah. Beware. This is not news. This is entertainment. And then, you know, under something that has passed that, it would say this has been certified to be accurate and balanced news. It's an interesting thing. I I think Twitter and Facebook actually ended up, you know, because of public pressure, I think they ended up doing kind of the right thing by starting to flag, you know, posts as untrue. Right. The thing that you're reading right now is, is provably otherwise. So read at your own risk. I think that's actually pretty good. I I am curious, and I have no information on this, but I'm really curious at whether or not uh, that worked and that allowed people to kind of wake up a little bit uh, and realize that they might not be seeing things that are true, or if that just aggravated the people who needed to see it the most. If that just made them mad. That's a really good question. Be a very interesting study, and are we interested in getting there? Now, I have you know, friends who are a little more conspiracy-minded, who trust the government a little less than I do. Um, And they would say they're never going to do that because it's important to them that they keep their country completely divided. Yeah. I I think that it's dangerous to bundle government as a four-letter word. Right. I think it's really dangerous. We are we are a group of individuals that if we want to move anything forward, we need government. We need we need legislative bodies. We need cooperative work. We will not heal if we don't embrace that one single fact. And if you haven't gone out and read a little bit of uh, Anangir Doradas, he does some incredible writing and thinking on this, and that's his call too. I'm I'm pilfering it straight from Anand. We have to have government. Let's take that as table stakes, right? Because whether you want a smaller government or a bigger, more uh, uh, protective government, a safety net government, you want a government and you want a government to work. If you say, I don't trust government, I hate government, then what you're saying implicitly is all of the services that I count on, I don't care about anymore. And I don't think you mean that. I think your conspiracy has clouded your reality. And let's at least talk about it as if it hasn't, because we want roads, we want stop signs, we want schools, we need government. You might not trust Mitch McConnell. You might not trust Joe Biden. But that doesn't mean give up on government. Don't give up on government. Right. It's a process that can work beautifully. Part of why it's easier for me to trust it is because my father and stepmother worked their entire careers, you know, for the Agency for International Development and did amazing government work. Truly brilliant people working with other truly brilliant people to do their absolute best. And I worked uh, a summer up on Capitol Hill um, as a congressional 
uh, intern and I met some people who, you know, in my experience were really, really working hard to do the right yeah. thing. And often it, unfortunately, with our short attention span and with the absolute massive amount of information it takes to understand any one issue, it's easy to oversimplify the issues in our minds and therefore the solutions. And especially if we get, you know, pushed that direction by a news source that's not very biased and or that is biased and doesn't look at the nuances of a problem, it's hard to go, yeah, but this is complicated. <laughs> yeah. And yes, it often yes is. Yes, and. Yeah. Yes, and. Yep. If you serve anyway. on even one little board of directors for your condo association or something, you start looking at some yeah. things, you're like, oh, <laughs> I get why all those people think this is a simple solution. But it turns out you got all these other considerations they don't even understand. Dang. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, oh, yeah. A lot of what looks like conspiracy is just really hard problems to solve. Yeah. Yeah, there we but, are. you know, well, it's still really painful to see the disingenuous stuff creep in when it just turns mm -hmm. into gamesmanship like, yes, we'll have an impeachment trial, but not till after then. Oh, well, oh, by see, the way, now it doesn't count. Yeah. By the way, that's unconstitutional. <laughs> so sorry about that. We totally would have convicted him. But um, that's not. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, it's that's hard to swallow for sure. But it, it is part of the process. It's part of the sausage. It's it's part of the sausage. It's I, I just I would hate if that kind of mistrust in because of this history of disingenuousness would get in the way of quality people trying to do the right thing by running for office. Right. Mm -hmm. it, uh, if you if you really don't trust it that much, run for office, make some change. Right. Well, thank you to Lance Bennett. I want to say one more time to everybody out there, Communicating the Future, Solutions for Environment, Economy, and Democracy is a cool book and uh, worth checking out, written by a really cool dude. And really thank cool you to dude. Lance out there for his time coming to talk with us some, about some big things. I hope he comes back. You think he'll come back? Seemed like he would come back. Heck yeah. I bet All he right. would. We should There's a lot to talk about. It's ever-changing. Right. Good talk, Dodge. All right, man. Love you, buddy. Love you, buddy.